Hey everybody, Marshall here. Hey, like I do at the beginning of all of these Outfield Excursion episodes, I just want to promote the uh, Patreon page where I have a lot of extra content that you don't see here on the main feed. This episode uh, where we talk about Vertigo was on the Patreon page over a month ago and people were able to listen to it over there. And I just posted a new episode of the Outfield Excursions where Rish and I talk about another Alfred Hitchcock film, Rope. And there's a lot of interesting things around that movie. So feel free to head on over to patreon.com slash journeyinto and join the patrons over there. Uh, you can sign up for just a dollar a month and get a lot of these extras that I provide over there. But for now, on to today's episode. Hello there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Outfield Excursions, where we talk about various movies out there and... Uh, try to make sense of it all and try to uh, provide some insight of our own to, to these movies that we review. Uh, when I say we, I, I mean myself, Marshall Latham, along with Rish Outfield, who's with us. Yes, that's me. That I'm the excursions part of the duo. <laughs> and uh, what, what movie are we going to talk about today, Rish? Uh, today we are going to do Alfred Hitchcock's classic 1958 release, Vertigo. Yeah, starring Jimmy Stewart, or James Stewart, whichever you prefer, and Kim Novak in the lead roles. We did mention last episode that we were going to talk about Rope, but we decided to change that up for Vertigo this time. We might still talk about Rope at some point. I still have Rope. I got it from the library, but I got this on the same day. You weren't quite ready to record, so I went ahead and watched Vertigo. And about halfway through, I was just like, oh, man, I want to talk about this. And I think you said you had <laughs> access to Vertigo, right? Yeah, I, it was at my library as well. So I, I went and picked it up and then watched it over the weekend. So I guess, full disclosure, I, I had seen Vertigo uh, several years ago. I've probably, This is probably my third time that I've seen it. But it's been quite a while since I've I've watched the movie. And there were parts of it that uh, I, I had forgotten. Yeah, when I was a little boy and video cassettes were new, my dad would go to the Sounds Easy video store in the town where he worked. And he would, at first, he would bring back a VCR and a tape for us to watch. But eventually, I'd say about 1983, we got a VCR ourselves. And so he would just bring back tapes and... He discovered, and I'm trying to remember what the first one was that he got, but he discovered that I liked these Hitchcock movies, and he liked them when he was a kid. I think the first one that he got was The Man Who Knew Too Much. The Oh, that's a good one. The yeah. remake, the James Stewart one, and Doris Day. And uh, I just really dug that. And so he got Rear Window. He got Vertigo. It seems like there might have been one more that he got. And I, and I haven't seen Vertigo since then. So we're talking, geez, 35 years or something like that. Yeah. Um, but I had remembered it. People always talk about what a great movie it is. A lot of people say it's Hitchcock's masterpiece. So I was familiar with it. There's a scene in 12 Monkeys where they go to a movie theater and Vertigo is playing there. And oh. I don't know. And that came out in 95, I want to say. Might have been 96. And it seems like all of that was familiar to me when I saw 12 Monkeys. And so maybe I had seen it again on television in the 90s, but most of this was felt new to me when I was watching it in 2020. And, and I, I wish that I could talk to the little boy me and see what he took out of it versus what I take now. Yeah, I would wonder the same thing. I guess what, what to a younger brain, you know, what, what are the things that you would key into and those kinds of things. Why was it so memorable? Yeah, that'd be interesting. I think, and we don't do a lot of these episodes, so remind me if I'm wrong, but I think we usually go through the whole story of the movie first, and then we talk about our thoughts. Is that the plan? Yeah, we do. Some Sometimes we you know, do a little bit of pausing in between and talking about certain scenes or whatever, but I think the initial uh, setup that we had was just kind of a brief run-through of the, of the storyline and then we went back and picked out pieces and, and highlighted the things that we really liked about it. It's funny, though, you mentioned, <laughs> brought back a lot of memories of, you know, when 
VHS was new and you could actually go to the store and you could choose if you wanted Betamax or VHS and when that was still a thing. And yeah, I remember renting, taking a long time to look through the list of movies that you wanted and you'd get like two or three or something. And then, yeah, you'd have to rent the VCR as well. Come home and take a while getting that all set up. And then you'd have it for like a weekend and you'd watch whatever movies you got over and over for the whole weekend because you had to turn it back in on Monday or whatever it was. And yeah, I think I had, you know, I was one of those bad people that I'm, I'm not in a minority of people that, you know, I would get one with two videos on it and tape the movies onto another VHS and have like three different movies on the VHS and, and then return that to the video store. I think I had Vertigo, Psycho, and maybe Rope on one of those taped VHSs. I don't know if I had any other Alfred Hitchcocks at that time, but I know people that had their own movie library from doing that kind of thing. But Yeah, I, I, I did too. My best friend's mom, had they had HBO, and she would just tape movies off of HBO. Oh, right. Then they had like a whole list of all the movies that they had. And uh, I don't know, that was exciting, especially as a kid where you just, wow, free. I have all these choices. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> People have it so easy today. Yeah, it's like, uh, oh, what? Oh, it's not on Netflix. Oh, check, check if it's on Hulu or <laughs> check if it's on. Yeah, <laughs> but my wife's always horrified when I tell her about that that I dubbed the tapes. You can't do that, she'd say. <laughs> so. She's like, didn't you see the FBI warning at the beginning of the tape? <laughs> yeah. Well, let let's get into Vertigo here and kind of go through the storyline and what's going on with it. Do you want to start off and then... Okay. So we start right at the very beginning. We have an action sequence. Two policemen, one of them is is Jimmy Stewart, playing Scotty... Ferguson. Okay. Scotty Ferguson and his partner, they're chasing a suspect. I I guess it's across the roof of San Francisco high-rise or some kind of building, right? Yep, yep. And Scotty slips and he starts to go off the edge and he catches himself on like a rain gutter. He's dangling and he looks down at the ground and, you know, he gets this intense sense of vertigo, of, 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 of falling, terror kind of thing. His partner stops the pursuit and comes back to rescue Scotty. And he reaches down and, you know, give me your hand. And, and it tries to pull him up and he topples over the side and falls past Scotty to his death on the ground below. And we see just like this horror on Scotty's face, this shock. And then I believe the titles start to play. And when we next catch up with Scotty, he has been put on leave. Uh, I think he is eventually retired from the police department. And even though he's physically all right, he has this acute sense of vertigo. And he's explaining to his friend... uh, Midge. Midge, right, thanks. And Midge is this nice blonde lady with glasses who clearly has feelings for Scotty. And years ago, he explains that they were engaged. I think they knew each other from college. Uh, and she had broken it off, but she I, I think it's fair to say that she still has feelings for him. Now they're like good friends. He's explaining to her that he can't do his job anymore because anytime he goes high places, he gets this intense sense of vertigo and he freezes up and, and he's just terrified. Uh, and you can't be a cop with that condition. Right. You want to take over or you want me to keep going? Uh, yeah, I can take over from there a little bit. But yeah, that scene, that opening scene, that still got me again when his... Not necessarily that he was in jeopardy when he was hanging from the rain gutter, but when his the, the other cop falls to his death and he, he witnesses that. That still got me when I was watching that this time. But yeah, so on with the story... He gets a call from an old friend that wants to see him, and he goes and, and talks to him. And one of the things that I enjoy about Hitchcock movies, and and this one in particular, is I don't know if you call it cinematography. I guess that's what it is, but the framing of the shots, and just this scene in the office where he's talking to his friend. It's a humongous office at a shipyard or something like that. And as they're talking, you know, they're walking to various different places and, and talking, and I just. 
really like that sense that the way that those shots are framed and the progression of it. But basically, his his friend is asking for his help. His wife is having problems, and she's she's having spells where she doesn't remember uh, what she's done or where she's been, and he's followed her to various places, and she doesn't remember that she went there, and uh, he's worried about her, and he kind of starts asking Scotty if he, if he believes in the, the supernatural and if, you know, a ghost could inhabit somebody's body, just kind of talking about these things. And, you know, he's a pretty, Scotty's a pretty logical guy. And he's like, well, you know, I'd probably have her see a doctor and uh, have her checked out. Maybe have her spend some time in a sanitarium or something like that. And he's like, well, no, I just, I need you to, to follow her for me and to check on her and see where she's going and let me know. And he's like, well, you know, I'm not a cop anymore. I don't really do that kind of work. But his friend talks him into it. And so it shows him as he he's kind of uh, on a stakeout outside their house in the daytime. And, he, and then he sees her come out and get into the car and go for a drive. And he follows her wherever she goes. And she ends up, I think the first place she goes is a, uh, a graveyard. And she, she goes and, and visits this grave. And then he checks it out, and it's this Carlotta is the is the headstone that she was looking at. And then she goes to a, an art museum, oh, and and she had bought like a bouquet of flowers, and had gone to this museum. And she was staring at it, just sitting there, staring at a painting. And when he looked at the painting, it, it was a picture of a, of a woman holding flowers and had her hair done a certain way. And he noticed that it was the same way that. Let's see. The name of the... Madeline. Madeline is the name of uh, the wife. And so Madeline had her hair uh, done that same way that was in the painting. And she had the same flowers that are in the painting. And she just looked at that painting for a long time, silently. And he talked to one of the people at the museum. And he says, what's what's that painting that she's looking at over there? And he says, oh, that's the painting of Carlotta. And he gives him a little brochure of all the different paintings and and then i believe at that point she just goes back home and and he kind of reports on it to to the husband but he continues to follow her and at one point she goes to a a park or or a place right next to the the golden gate bridge there in san francisco kind of almost under the bridge i think i've been to that park i don't remember that exact spot but I think I've been to that area where they were at. And she's throwing the flowers into the water. And then she just jumps into the bay. And of course, you know, he, he takes off his shoes and his coat and jumps in and saves her. And ends up bringing her, bringing her back to his house so that she can dry out. And, you know, it was cold. So, um, and at that point, you know, he, he starts to get feelings for her and when she wakes up he she's a little startled that he's there and of course he's telling the husband that what happened and that she's there and he's taking care of her and uh i remember my wife asking well, why didn't he just take her back to her house instead of bringing him back to his house and i guess that would be because he's not supposed to know where she lives or who she is so um, in order to avoid suspicion i guess he would do that mm. Yeah, sorry, let me interrupt for a second. Uh, so he talks to his friend, and his friend reveals that this Lady Carlotta was her great-grandmother or great-great-grandmother. Right. And that, I want to say, her own mother committed suicide when she was around that age. The husband is just convinced that Carlotta's spirit is possessing her descendants. Right. Yes. And I, I, I don't know if Madeline says it herself or the husband says it, but he says that she'll lose time. He'll talk to her and say, where do you did you go? And she says, I, I don't know. I don't I don't I didn't go anywhere. But then like he looks at her car and she's driven hundreds of miles, you know. Right. And so I, I guess the next day he runs into her. Scotty runs into Madeline. No, she comes to his house to return something, right? Yes, yeah. She she comes to I think to just to leave a thank you note because she had left abruptly. He 
he was in the bedroom talking and she just had left the house. So she'd come back to uh, give him a thank you note. And I guess at that point, you know, it was pretty obvious that he had feelings for her. And you kind of got the sense that she was feeling close to him as well. That that traumatic event had kind of bonded them. They they go to this... On here it says it's called Moore Woods. I just had assumed, it, you know, it was at the Redwoods. Right. Where, where they have those gargantuan trees. The two of them go together there. And Madeline talks about feeling haunted and doomed. And uh, this is the scene that was in 12 Monkeys. She, there's a, a, a cut down tree with like the lines in it. To, you know, this tree has existed for hundreds of years. And at this point, I was born. And at this point, I died. And, you know, it doesn't mean anything. It's, she's super fatalistic. And just, I, I think she feels cursed and that there's no getting out of it. She is going to die. And that only draws Scotty closer to her. You know, he, he doesn't want her to die. He, 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 die. he hates that she's haunted like this. And of course, I guess, if you've saved the life of somebody, you feel a bond with them anyway. You feel protective of them, you, you know? Yeah, for sure. I'm responsible for you now. You know, the Chinese say that once you've saved a person's life, you're responsible for it forever. So I'm committed. It's as though I, I were walking down a long corridor that once was mirrored. And fragments of that mirror still hang there. And when I come to the end of the corridor, there's nothing but darkness. And I know that when I walk into the darkness, that I'll die. But clearly he is falling in love with her, and they, they spend more and more time together... And yeah, like you said, she's d developing feelings for him, too. There's this great moment where they go to the ocean and these, these waves are hitting, you know, th these, uh, you know, with like violence, the waves where the water will hit the rocks and it sprays up into the air, right? <laughs> and they share their first, uh, like a super passionate kiss. Right. Right there as the water is going. <laughs> it's, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> it is, yeah. Yeah, and, it, and at some point, um, either she talks about it or he finds out about this mission, that uh, the Spanish mission where Carlotta had spent some time, or uh, I can't remember exactly how they ended up to the mission, but... I think she said she had a dream about this place. Oh, that's right, yes. And he said I, he did some research, and that was where Carlotta lived, was this mission in... Do you remember where it is? Is it San Juan or something like that? looking it up here <laughs> well while you're looking it up uh midge meanwhile has talked to him a couple of times and she can tell that he's uh you know distracted she follows him at one point and sees him with madeline and sees what a difference it has made in his life and in the very first scene with her i don't i didn't mention it but i believe she says that she had done research in his condition uh, acrophobia right yes and that the only way out of it is to have a, uh, like a jarring emotional shock like the one that put him into that state. But he can't bring himself to go. He, he shows her, he tries to climb a stepladder and he's fine. But on like the fourth or fifth step, he looks down and the floor seems to drop out beneath him and he, he freezes. He can't do it. He sees the, the street below. He looks up, ends up looking out the window down all the way from her building when he's up there and uh, almost, well, he does faint, I guess, a little bit at that point. But this all culminates in that Scotty tells Madeline that if she goes to this place that she's obsessed with, that she's had the dreams about, that maybe it'll break her spell as well. You know what I mean? Right. Like the emotional shock will cure her of this melancholy or obsession or fatalism or whatever it is that has beset her. So yeah, it looks like the, that mission is in San Juan Batista. So they, they go there and they're looking around and then she runs over to the church and kind of gets away from him and he follows her 
over there. And by the time he gets in there, he doesn't know where she is. And then he hears, hears something over and he, there's a bell tower in the church. And he goes over there and she's going up the stairs to the bell, to the top of the bell tower. And so he starts to follow her up there. And as he's following up, following her up there, you know, every once in a while he'll, he'll see over the edge and look down at the bottom of the spiral staircase that goes up the, the, to the bell tower, you know, has experiences of vertigo. And he's like, Oh, I don't know, but it keeps going. He, tr- he tries to make it up there, uh, but eventually he can't, he can't go any further. And she goes up ahead and he hears a scream and he sees her fall out from the window where he's standing. He sees her fall down to her death. Of course, you know, people come and they, they heard the scream and, and they're coming to check it out. And I don't know if he doesn't want to get caught or whatever, but he kind of, of course, he feels mortified that this woman has killed herself and that he wasn't able to stop her. Um, but he kind of goes down and sneaks out of the, the bell tower. What, but, but more than that, before she ran away, they have this moment and she tells him that she loves him no matter what happens. Something I must do. No one possesses you. You're safe with me. You believe I love you? Yes. And if you lose me, then you'll know I I loved you and I wanted to go on loving you. I won't lose you. Let me go into the church. Alone. Why? She runs into the bell tower. Right. And yeah, yeah, he doesn't, he, he does, he turns away and there's just this awful look on his face. And then, yeah, there's an inquest and they put him, I guess they put him on trial or at least they question him. It looks like a judge and a jury, right? Yeah. I don't know if it was necessarily to, to judge him or if he was just a, a witness to what happened and, and they're, you know, trying to find it out. But he tells his part of the story and of course the his old police chief is there and his and his friend is there the the husband is there and and uh i guess eventually they they believe him and they find no fault with anything that he did and so everything's kind of settled and the the friend of his comes over and he says that he's going to sell the business or um cuz it was her, it was her family's business the shipyard that he was running for her family and he says yeah i I can't do it anymore and, and I'm going to sell the company and go off and do whatever. And, you know, he tells Scotty, he says, it's not your fault. You know, I understand everything. And then that's kind of, the, that part of it's kind of over and, and Scotty's still kind of really depressed and, and down. And uh, after, you know, you can tell time has gone by and he is just kind of walking around the city looking at different places. I think he goes to the flower shop where Madeline had bought the flowers and he's looking around and, and this woman walks by and just kind of catches his eye and, and I think she's wearing like a, like a green dress and she has red hair and, uh, but something about her just captures him and he kind of follows her and <laughs> follows her right up to her apartment and knocks on the door and, and tries to talk to her. And he's like, who are you? where are you from? And just, and she's like, Hey, mister, I don't know you. I'm not going to tell you anything. And, and, uh, she's kind of got an accent and, uh, yeah. Cause Madeline was English. Right. And this girl, I think she said she was from Kansas. Does that sound right? Yep. Salina, Kansas, I think is where she was from, but he just, he's very persistent and he just, you know, he says, please, please let me in. I just want to talk. I'm not, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not dangerous. Um, and he just, you know, asked all her requests. She shows him his, her driver's license, her uh, Kansas driver's license, and her California driver's license, trying to prove to him. And uh, he's just still stuck with the, you know, that she reminds him so much of Madeline, even though, you know, it's proven to him that, that she's a different person. But then he asks her out, can I take you to dinner? I'm, I'm sorry to cause you all this stress. Can I, can I take you out to dinner? I'll come back and I'll pick you up and we'll go to dinner. She kind of hesitates, but then she she says, yes, yes, that's fine. And this is kind of the the point where everything turns around a little bit. She says, give me an hour or something like that. And then as soon as he leaves, she, she gets in her closet and she pulls out a suitcase and she starts packing up and everything. And then, then she stops. She You kind of see a flashback of what happened. 
and it shows that uh, she was Madeline, and it shows the scene at the bell tower from her perspective, and she goes up the stairs, and when she gets up to where the bell is actually at, Scotty's friend is there with another woman that that looks like Madeline, and he throws her out the window and grabs Scotty's Madeline, trying to keep her quiet, and you realize at that point that she wasn't the real Madeline, that she was playing that part. And then she writes him a letter, because uh, she's going to leave and never see him again. And so she writes him this letter telling him about everything and how she's so sorry and she does love him, and but she, she can't stay and bear being with him any longer. And, and then as soon as she, she gets done writing the letter, she rips it up and throws it away and uh, starts putting all of her clothes back in and and they they end up going out to dinner and she she wants to be with him even though she's a different person now and she believes she hopes that she can get him to fall in love with her for who she is and not Madeline so that you know that's another one of those hitchcock twists that comes i don't know if it's quite in the middle of the movie but it's it's definitely maybe the after about two-thirds of the way through the movie, you know, everything's kind of turned around and you have a whole different perspective on everything that's been going on. Yeah, see, that really surprised me because I remembered what the punchline of the story was, you know, what the that, that it had been a murder plot and that she had never actually been, that Scotty had never met the wife of his friend. Right. So when they reveal that right there in that scene, when we first meet Judy, I was just like, oh, well, that's that's weird. Why did Hitch not wait until the end of the movie to reveal that? And I still don't know. It's just an interesting choice to reveal it there before Scotty knows. And I, I think he just wanted that 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 different perspective where now we're seeing everything through Judy's eyes and you know seeing how it's affecting Scotty and and you know how it's affecting her. And just kind of writing that relationship and seeing where it goes, giving us the audience the knowledge, and just you know now, and I think at this point too, Scotty changes his personality. You know he's totally obsessed at this point with turning Judy into Madeline because she looks so much like her, and he starts trying to dress her like. Madeline, you know, he's going to go buy her some clothes. And she's like, oh, I like that. And he goes, no, that's not right. Really being um, controlling of her. And he wants her to to wear the the right clothes. There was a gray outfit that she that Madeline was wearing when he first met her. And so he wanted her to have that. And then he, he says, or can you change your hair color? And she starts to resist. She says, no, can't you just let it go? Can't you just... Love me for who I am and not... Color of your hair. No. And he's like, well... I started to laugh because he's just like, well, it can't matter much to you what your hair looks like. I love that line. He's like, it can't matter to you. Judy, please, it can't matter to you. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's almost ugly, some of these scenes. Like, he has her dye her hair blonde. The same shade as... Madeline's. If I let you change me, will I do it? I do what you tell me. Will you love me? Yes. Yes. Right. And Judy comes with like her hair down, and of course she looks great, but he's like, no, no, that's not what I wanted. I told you that it had to, you know, kind of thing. He's just like, he does not appreciate her for her. She has to become Madeline. Yeah, he, he kind of, instead of being the, the sympathetic protagonist, he kind of becomes the antagonist and, and kind of, you don't know what, what he's going to do or, or he just kind of changes by because of his obsession. And it's kind of interesting to watch it in 2020, how controlling he is. And, and uh, she just kind of lets it happen because she wants to be with him. And if it makes him happy and, um, of course, she wants him to love her for who she is, but he's just obsessed with this image of Madeline. But then at some point, he figures it out. He figures out. I think out. what it is, is 
he's finally turned her into a, a complete lookalike of Madeline and he's happy and she slips and wears the same necklace that she wore as Madeline that was on the painting of Carlotta in the museum. Right. And I think at that moment, he's just like, well, no, he says it later. He says, you slipped up. You, you kept the necklace, you know. The necklace, Madeline. That was a slip. I remembered the necklace. So he tells her he has this idea of that he can love her for her if they go back to the place where Madeline died, right? Right. He, he puts her in a car and they drive down to the mission. <laughs> but he doesn't tell her where they're going. Oh, he doesn't. Okay. Yeah, he just says, oh, they were going to go to that restaurant that they've been to several times already. And then he says, no, I, I think I'd like to go somewhere else. And so uh, I li really like that scene, too, because there was a scene when they were the first time they were driving to the mission when she was playing Madeline. And they're driving down the road toward the mission. And she looks up and she sees the trees and kind of what it looks like. The sky looks like against the trees as they're driving. And then in that second, the second time that they're driving out to the mission, you know, and he just, she goes, oh, we're driving kind of far, aren't we? He's like, oh, yeah, I, but I know this place or whatever he says. And then as they're driving, she looks up and she sees the trees again and realizes she's been here before. And, she's, and then she realizes, oh, crap, we're going to the mission. He's, what, what's he going to do? We don't know, as the audience, what he's going to do. We know that he knows, but we don't know, you know, how far he's going to take this or what, where it's leading. See, I didn't know and... if he knew. But it, a couple of times, he, he grabs her and he sort of manhandles her and he calls her Madeline instead of Judy. <laughs> and, and at that point, I was just like, oh my gosh, I think he has snapped. Because, yeah, we didn't really talk about it, but he was institutionalized after... The incident where Madeline, you know, fell to her death. Oh, okay. I missed that part, I guess. Yeah, the, he was in like a catatonic state in a in a mental hospital or something. And so I was just like, oh, no, he has lost his mind because he's calling her Madeline. And he's like, we've got to go back up there, Madeline. And only then will you, that kind of thing. And uh, right. he, and he forces her up the stairs and... He's able to make it. He's, he's broken free of the acrophobia. He's telling her that that's the point where he tells her that you slipped up. You wore the necklace. And then I knew. And I was putting all the pieces together. And the only one I couldn't understand was you screamed before uh, my friend threw his wife off the roof. Why did you scream? Uh, did you have second thoughts at the last moment, you know? And I, he says, I bet she, it wasn't her that screamed. I'll bet he had already broken her neck. He'd broken her neck. Wasn't taking any chances, was he? So when he got up there, he pushed her off the tower. But it was you that screamed. Why did you scream? Since you tricked me so well up to then. Yeah, he's just like obsessed and, 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 and mad at this point, right? And he forces her to the very top of the bell tower. Right. And he kind of pushes her. Throws her pretty firmly against the wall, and he's you know he's he's kind of going off and says, "Oh, so what did you get out of it? What did he offer you? What what did he do?" And of course, she got money for it, and he says, "And then he just left you, didn't he? He didn't take you with him. He he just discarded you once once you'd done what he wanted to do." And you know, she of course she's crying and heartbroken and trying to explain everything, and then they hear something and they look up and they see this something dark coming up the stairs and she steps back and trips on the windowsill, I guess, and falls out the window, the same window that the actual Madeline fell out. And she falls and come to find out it's just one of the nuns from the mission saying, oh, I, I heard voices up here. And then, of course, he steps out on the window and looks down where she's died. And that's the end. That's... <laughs> That's where we leave um, Scotty and, and Vertigo. <laughs> I don't know, it's just really well done. You, you don't trust him anymore at the end, and you don't know what's going to happen. There's a lot of, you know, of course, Alfred Hitchcock is considered the master of suspense, and that just builds that suspense there at the end when you, when you don't know what Scotty's going to do and how it's going to end up. But then it's just by chance that she gets scared and falls out the window. 
kind of one of those ironic things in an Edgar Allan Poe or an Alfred Hitchcock kind of movie. And, you know, I wonder what happened after that. You know, this is the second woman that's fallen out with Scotty right there. And I guess, was was he arrested? Was he accused of killing this, of Judy? Well, you know? luckily and, there and... was a nun there who can say exactly what happened, right? True, that's true. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, it's, it's really good. Oh yeah, and just going back to the cinematography, you know, I just love, there's so many really great shots that uh, you don't see much anymore. And, and sometimes when you do see them, it seems out of place. You know, when somebody's trying to ape an Alfred Hitchcock shot, you can kind of tell that they're being arty or they're they're trying to do, you know, like M. Night Shyamalan would, would try to do that kind of stuff. And sometimes it would work, but sometimes you're like, oh, he's just trying to to get it ca- capture an Alfred Hitchcock shot there. Um, but just some of the stuff like in Judy's hotel room, there's a big neon sign outside the window and it's green. And so in a, in a lot of the shots, especially when he's trying to make her, you know, where she comes out of the bathroom after changing her hair color or you know, redoing her hair to make it look like Madeline's hair. And she comes out and she's kind of almost glowing in green as she comes out and just, the coloring of that, you know, almost like a black and white shot, but it's in color, but it's just kind of the green and black backdrop there. I just thought that worked really well. And then uh, another shot that I noticed, it was in the museum. There's kind of a, just a big wide shot of him looking at her while she's staring at the painting. And, you know, you can see the big marble pillars and things on the side of the room where he's looking in at her. And then she starts to get up to leave and he just kind of, you know, sneaks off to the side so she doesn't see him. And I don't know, just those kinds of shots, I think, are are really kind of neat. And they're kind of of that era. It's always been impressive to me. Yeah, it it was really beautiful. I was watching it on DVD and it was the, what was it, like 1996 or something like that, Restoration. Uh, Oh, yeah. It's in Vista Vision and this Technicolor from the 1950s. It looks unlike anything before or later there's just like a weird surreal quality to the colors and the light and all that stuff that it's beautiful but it doesn't look like real life it looks heightened like yes like a, like paintings come to life or something like that it's so hard to explain but when you see one of these 1950s technicolor movies the three strip technicolor the colors just are beyond real, whatever the word for that would be. Surreal, I guess. <laughs> yeah, because there's like the shot you were talking about with the ocean in the background. There was the stuff with the giant trees. And there was like, you know, the scene where she jumps into the bay underneath the Golden Gate Bridge. I mean, that that wide shot is really cool, too, to see that. Just a lot of really neat things like that in there. I I had forgotten when I was watching the movie... You know, Alfred Hitchcock, I don't know if he was one of the first, but he's pretty famous for having cameos in, in pretty much every one of his movies. And I'd forgotten about that. I'm like, oh, shoot, I forgot to look for his cameo in this. Uh, did you happen to catch it? Yeah, he was walking in front of the shipping building when uh, Scotty went to meet his friend. He was carrying like a tuba case or a trumpet case or uh, the... the uh, saxophone. What did Will Riker play? trombone case oh yeah trombone i missed it you know when i was watching but then i i looked it up i'm like well i'm sure it's online somewhere where (laughs) where this so i found it i said oh okay i must have must have missed that when i was watching it but that's always kind of neat too sometimes it's pretty obvious when he's there but that one it was a little bit more subtle um but again you know that's something you know with stan lee and again and, and m night Shyamalan tries to do that as well that's just kind of a neat thing that I think Alfred Hitchcock started, but I'm not sure. Well, he was definitely most famous for it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he would try and do it really subtly. I'm trying to remember, there was one movie where he didn't physically cameo, but there was an advertisement like on a billboard for like slim quick. Oh. You know, go from fat to thin. And he was the fat guy on the the billboard. (laughs) But yeah, the, the the other thing that's interesting to me about the film is it it's from the 50s, from what, 57, 58? 58, yeah. But it didn't feel that dated to me. It didn't feel like the way that people talked didn't have that old timey, not real 
way about it. Yeah. And it felt very adult. It felt like it could still speak to me on, speak to a person in the modern time. You know, there were constraints on the film business after the 1930s with the Hayes Code and certain things that you couldn't say and couldn't do and couldn't even have your figure into your story. And one of the things that sucked the most about the Hayes Code is that ev- evildoers could never get away with their crimes or be seen to profit from their crimes. Mm. And interestingly enough, the Hayes Code gave Vertigo a hard time when it was released because the friend has murdered his wife and he's moved overseas and he's never brought to justice. And so they were forced to shoot an alternate ending where Midge is listening to the radio. Did your DVD have this? No, it didn't. I I just had a little uh, featurette where they talked about the restoration process for it, which was kind of neat, but not necessarily... Okay, so Midge is listening to the radio and the announcer over the radio (laughs) explains that this guy has been arrested for the murder of his wife. And they were forced (laughs) to put that in there. But ultimately, Paramount... I, I think it was Paramount. Gosh, I hope so. Talked to the Hayes Code and said, you know, we've done this, but nobody's going to care about that. And, and the Hayes Code, whoever was in charge of it, was just like, yeah, that, that's fine. But and they, they made another demand. <laughs> and the demand was, <laughs> there's the shot where, where Scotty has taken her back to his apartment. And all of like her wet clothes are hanging like in the bathroom and stuff right. like that. And the Hayes Code said... You have to change the shot where you can see her bra and her underwear. Okay. And so in the finished film, in the 1958 film, it's like her dress and her stockings and then like two white nondescript items, like big handkerchiefs or something like (laughs) Like that. Like bloomers or something. And then, yeah, yeah, like her blouse or whatever. And that was to appease the Hayes Code, which like you cannot show that he took off her clothes, you know, that kind of stuff. I, I, but again, I wouldn't have picked up on that had I not listened to the commentary, had I not read about the movie. I really felt like it was a modern film that you could appreciate today. And I wondered, well, why has nobody ever remade Vertigo? And, and yeah, except for Psycho, uh, I guess they did a rear, rear Window. I guess they did a Dial M for Murder. Maybe they have done a lot of Maybe. Uh, a lot of Hitchcock remakes, but... A lot of his stuff is considered pretty sacrosanct. You know, he's the master of suspense. And it's like you you have to be pretty arrogant to try to to think that you can update that or remake that. But Brian De Palma, who was a huge admirer of Hitchcock and made a bunch of movies that were homages to Hitchcock films like, you know, he made Dress to Kill, which is like Psycho. He made a movie called Obsession in uh, 74. Hmm. with Cliff Robertson in it. And in that movie, it's not a remake of Vertigo, but it is. it does follow a similar story where a man loses his wife and daughter in an accident, and then it cuts to many years later, and he runs into a woman who looks like his wife that died, and he becomes obsessed with her and remaking her into the spitting image of his wife. And of course, she's played by the same actress who played his wife. But I, I, I had never seen Obsession. I'd never heard of Obsession. I just, huh. I, I found that really interesting that that uh, existed. And I, I wonder what a remake of Vertigo would be like, how it could work. I don't know if you saw the remake of Rear Window. I didn't. But it was hard to watch, man. Yeah, I can imagine, because that's another, I mean, just classic Hitchcock show. Well, but mostly it was hard to watch because in Rear Window, and if we ever talk about Rear Window, I'd love to. I I love the movie. But Jimmy Stewart has a broken leg, and that's why he's convalescing, you know, in this apartment. But in the remake, it's Christopher Reeve, and he is a quadriplegic. Oh, right. And it just, it changed the whole feel of the movie because this is, he's played by an actual man who cannot use his arms and legs and he's so helpless, you know, the, the ending is the same as in the Hitchcock version. And you're just like, but this guy, he can't. I, oh, my gosh. It was so I had to look away. It really was painful for me to watch it, I thought. Mm. Uh, Daryl Hannah played the uh, Grace Kelly part in that one. 
And then, of course, there was the Gus Van Sant Psycho. and uh, Right. Yeah, I haven't seen that one either. But... Unless you want to do a scathing episode about that, the, the less you say about that, <laughs> the better. I'm kind of intrigued by it, but, I mean, it just seems silly to try to recapture that one. Well, did you ever see the 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 movie that the kids did in the late 1980s where they remade Raiders of the Lost Ark shot for shot? And it took them like five years to make it. No, I never saw that. Oh, okay. Well, it is awesome. <laughs> and I had I got a chance to see it, a screening of it, with the guy that played Indy. All he's fifty now or something like that. But I was crying halfway through, just at the, I don't know, the hubris of youth of daring <laughs> <laughs> to try and do this. And the Gus Van Sant remake of Psycho, which was the shot-for-shot remake in 1998, was just like that shot-for-shot remake of Raiders, but without any of the charm. Uh, yeah, and who's who stars in that? I can't remember. Well, uh, Vince Vaughn plays Norman Bates. Vince Vaughn, that's right. Uh, Anne Heche plays the Janet Lee part. Red-haired actress... Julianne Moore plays the sister that Vera Miles played. Oh, okay. So, yeah, there are celebrities in that, but it's just, I hated it. It was so awful, mostly because I just, the whole time I was aware of what I was seeing. And I was just like, why would you do this? Why would anybody do this? Why would Universal pay money to do this? I could see a high, not a high school, a college student, somebody in film school saying, we're going to remake uh, the, the shower scene from Psycho, or we're going to remake a scene from Psycho. Everybody does it in film school. That's one of your assignments is take a scene from a movie and remake it. Right. And I, I, I participated in, in a couple of those. But to do an entire feature length remake of a movie and use the same script, the same dialogue, uh, it was just... I, I don't know. I, I, I found it offensive. And the other people don't is baffling to me. Did it do well? or? No, no, it didn't. Okay. I mean, good. nobody ever talks about <laughs> it except for as a cautionary tale of, hey, guys, don't ever do this. Did you ever hear that they did a... And, you know, of course, Disney did it uh, two years ago with Beauty and the Beast. Right. I guess they added a couple of new scenes and stuff like that. But well, by that point, I was too old to ever want to see a shot-for-shot shot remake of a classic film again. Yeah. So that's why I was saying, I know I just veered us off into Neverland, but <laughs> I was just curious what a remake of Vertigo would be. And uh, the, the last thing I wanted to say to you, and I know I just keep jabbering, but I wanted to do this episode so badly because Vertigo didn't do well in 1958, and it, it didn't make a lot of money, and it, it wasn't critically acclaimed and Hitchcock blamed that on the fact that Jimmy Stewart was so much older than Kim Novak. Oh, really? I, I believe Stewart was 49 and Novak was 24. And that had tremendous resonance for me. And it never bothered me at all. Me neither, yeah. And I wondered, you know, well, Hitchcock said that that's why the movie didn't do well. And I'm thinking what he's saying is that that's not sexy, that people don't want to go see an older man and a younger woman. They would want to see two people in the prime of their lives. Is, is, is that what it was? Maybe. But, it, but I mean, you can't go wrong with Jimmy Stewart. I mean, he kind of seems like an everyman anyway and not necessarily ageless, but it's hard to place, you know, how old he looks in that movie. Right. Yeah, so... And she's timeless, too. I don't know if they give a year, an age for her, but she could be any age. She could be 35. She could be 25. And she's luminous. It's so weird how beautiful she is as Madeline. She looks like, I don't want to say an angel, but she looks like a perfect person. And, and if you know Hitchcock, he was obsessed with grace kelly and he wanted another grace kelly grace kelly stopped making movies so she could go be the princess of monaco and hitchcock spent the rest of his career trying to find another grace kelly and he went through all of these blondes <laughs> he only ever worked with novak on this movie and hitchcock had a tremendously strong temper and a foul uh 
memory if if somebody had slighted him, you know, kind of thing. Originally, right. Vera Miles was supposed to play Madeline in this. Right. I was going to bring that up. It. Oh, okay. So, you know, do you want to tell the story or do you want me to? Yeah, you, you had mentioned Vera Miles on Psycho and that, that one uh, little featurette that I had watched had talked about how Vera Miles was supposed to play Madeline in this and that she had done a lot of the pre-work and they had even painted if you look at the picture the portrait of Carlotta they had done that based on Vera Miles to look like her they had done that prep work and stuff and then something happened with the the production got delayed for some well well she went to Hitch and said that she was pregnant that's what it was right and he did not take that well Hitchcock's (laughs) relationship with actors was so weird he didn't respect he didn't respect anything in the filmmaking process to him all the fun of making a movie was coming up with the idea and working the script to where he thought it was perfect right and then it was all downhill from there and he'd be depressed he'd come on the set and he'd be like you know i've already made the movie in my head And I'm just going through the motions and it's never going to be as good as it was in my head. And these actors all want to put in their own little two cents and they want to know their motivation. And they just, I want them to go where they're supposed to go and learn their lines and hit their marks so that I can go on to the next project. And yeah, he really was upset that she was pregnant. The Like you said, the production got delayed and it got delayed long enough that they had found somebody else to replace Vera Miles uh, it was it was Kim Novak, and they were prepping the film, and enough time had passed that Miles had had her child and was back to fighting weight and went to Hitch and said, I can play Madeline now. And Hitch didn't even... It didn't matter anymore. And it also didn't matter that they had done the painting right. with Miles's face. He had the painting redone, and yeah, he'd cast uh, Kim Novak. He, he kept that. It was just a grudge that he had had with Miles. He still worked with her. He had worked with her in The Wrong Man. She was in the very first episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. She was in another one later. I think she was in the most famous episode, the Leg of Lamb one. Oh, right. And then later, yeah, he did cast her in Psycho as Marion Crane's sister. But it was funny. You hear these stories and like Tippi Hedren was, was one of those that he groomed to be the next Grace Kelly. And he put her in the birds and he put her in, in Marnie. And I guess he heard that at a dinner party, she had called him fat oh. and that was it. She was done. He never worked with her again. And oh, the, the, Hitchcock was a very sensitive guy and, and, you know, a passionate guy, but he was powerful. And if you angered him, well... That's it. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I never heard the reason why he never worked with Novak again. Because she was great in this. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. But he had worked. I don't know. Was this the last... Uh, the um, last Jimmy Stewart one? Jimmy Stewart one? Or when, No, Rear Window was older than this, wasn't it? He did Man Who Knew Too Much, Rear Window, Rope, and then I want to say Vertigo was the last. Okay. I think it was just the four. And okay. it I, it must have been that, where he blamed the lack of success on the movie on Jimmy Stewart. Huh. I, I can't think of another reason. I... Going back to one thing we you talked about quite a while ago, <laughs> my wife and I, when we were watching it, and he had taken Madeline back to his apartment, and you saw all of her clothes, and they were like, wow, did, so did he like totally undress her and put her in bed? And wow, he must have really enjoyed that. And she didn't seem to... My, you know, she didn't comment on that, that, hey, you took off my clothes. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> it was just kind of like, oh. You know. Well, I wonder if that was an attempt not to draw attention to it. Maybe people would know and, and you know, adults or whatever would, would catch on. But everybody else, you know, it would just kind of go by the by the radar. But that would be a pretty, you know, scary thing. Like, because, you know, she's laying in, in his bed or whatever and he's in the living room. And then the phone rings right next to his bed and, and he runs in to get the phone. Hopefully she doesn't wake up, but then he's talking on the phone and you know she wakes up and turns around and here's this guy standing there. 
That'd be I, pretty scary. I guess so. But you have to remember that she was playing a part. She wasn't really Madeline. True. She had not been trying to kill herself. It was a ploy so that the two of them could become close and he could testify that she was suicidal. Right. Yeah, that was the whole whole gambit. <laughs> she just hadn't counted on falling in love with him. I, at some point, I think she, she tells him that. Yeah. But anyway, I, we always go super long on these episodes, and I, I think it's just because I'm trying to talk as much as I can uh, to, to completely convey how I feel about a movie, and I liked this part, and I didn't like this part. It just, this is so good, this movie, and I... I am curious, like I said, what a remake would be like. But at the same time, I would be afraid. Yeah, I would be too. Um, because it would be so easy to mess up. And I do wonder, you know, I, it's too bad we don't have your wife here. Gender politics have really changed since the 1950s. And the idea that a man could take a woman out and say, you're going to dress like this and you're going to do this and wear this and oh, all man. that is much more shocking today than it would have been then. Right. Where basically a man's job was to take a woman away from all that, from all of her troubles and keep her and take care of her. And she's going to take his name and be his wife. I mean, every time in the 21st century, I hear uh, an old movie, they say Mrs. Henry Darrow or whatever. That is so anachronistic. You know what I mean? It's just like, whoa, people... She doesn't even have her name. She just misses the name of her husband. Yeah. Well, and we, we as we were watching it, though, we kind of commented, especially when he was just kind of getting crazy about it. And my kids weren't interested in watching it. You know, it's just a stupid old movie or whatever. But uh, my my one son came in during that scene in the hotel room when he, he's like... You know, I want you to put this on. I want you to, you got to do your hair. It shouldn't matter to you. And he was just kind of like, <laughs> what are you watching? What is this thing? You know? So it was kind of funny. But yeah, my wife and I were kind of making comments about that. About that. Like, wow, he's he's really uh, going crazy on this one. Um, You had mentioned, was there anything you didn't like about it? Shoot. Right before we started recording, there was something that bothered me. Here's what it was, was there's a scene and it's a totally excisable scene. If I were editing this for television, I would lose the entire scene. But there's this moment where he follows her to a, uh, like a, a bed and breakfast kind of place, a hotel. And he goes in and he's talking to the clerk. Oh, right. And he says, I need, what, what's the name of the woman that's up there? And she's like, oh, I, I didn't see a woman. And, that, and the scene goes on forever. Uh, but eventually, you know, the woman, he, he shows the woman that he's a detective, even though he's not anymore. And he says, I need to check out that room. And he goes up the stairs and there's a moment when he looks down and he's fine. And that made me so angry. I was like, cut. Oh, when he, yeah. When he notices that their car isn't there anymore. I said, cut, you guys needed to put another scene here to remind us that it's difficult for him to go upstairs and, and all that. But they didn't do it. And it just that is the only scene that I, I, I just hated that scene. And I think it's just because of that, where I felt like it was a missed opportunity to remind us that he is helpless when he goes upstairs or with any heights at all. But instead, he was fine. Right. Yeah, that's true. That, that's me. I would like to know what you didn't like. Well, I don't know if it wasn't I didn't like, but it's just, um, I just, when he was uh, following her in the car, I'm like, wouldn't, wouldn't she be able to tell that he was, because I mean, he was like right pretty close to her. And every time she turned, he turned right there. At one point she goes in this alleyway and he like go follows her right into the alleyway and parks just down from where she's at and she gets out. And I'm like, man. He's not a very good uh, detective or very good at uh, following somebody and staying inconspicuous because he's always, it's, it seems like it's pretty obvious that he's doing that. Uh, it kind of reminded me of, I don't know if you ever watched the TV show Person of Interest. I did, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> one of the few shows I have seen. <laughs> that was one of our running jokes, my, my wife and I, as we were watching that show, because the, the one character, John, would always be following somebody because they were the person of interest for that episode or whatever. And it was always like super obvious. He's wearing this 
jacket and this you know white shirt and he's just right behind him all the time and then they stop and he just kind of you know goes in a window or whatever and it was just we always laughed at his skills of being inconspicuous and kind of reminded me of that here watching vertigo when he was following her in the car but i guess that didn't really bother me it was just something that we were commenting on that and then of course you know the way they filmed driving cars back then with oh, the, with the rear projection. Yeah, yeah the rear projection. It's or or no, it's a process shot. Rear projection can actually look good. <laughs> <laughs> Where the, the way they turn the wheel, you know, doesn't necessarily match what you're seeing in the windows and stuff. But that was all the movies at that time. So, Yeah, the, the movie visually was so beautiful. And I know that there are tons of people, tourists, that go to San Francisco and they go to the filming locations and there's that actual spot yeah. where Madeline jumps into the water. You said you had been there, and I was jealous of you. That Yeah, that I, I wish I would have been paying attention, because it, it, it has to be in that where, where that park that I was at. There has to be a way to you know, kind of drive where you, you see that shot. And I wish I would have remembered Vertigo at that point and, and uh, said, oh, I'm going to go take a picture right there. Yeah, I, I want to, too. I, I want to go there just because we've done this episode. And you can go to Moore Woods, and there's still that great big section of the tree. Okay. It shows the timeline, and this is where America was formed, and this is the, you know, death of George Washington or whatever. It's there. Huh. And people will go to, you know, the mission and, and, and places like that. I just, wow. I think that's great. Well, that was something that I learned, too, is that that mission... Either there was never a bell tower there or it was uh, had fallen down or something. And so everything with the bell tower was a either a matte painting or some kind of a processed view. Yeah, the story I had heard was that somebody had scouted that location long before and there was a bell tower. And when they went there to prep the film, it had burned. Ah, okay. And so they just recreated it with a, a matte painting. Yeah, because it was based on an Italian book, novel, I think. I want to say French. Oh, French. Okay. From Beyond Death or something like that. What, what is it? I From... can't remember the title of it, but it was based on a novel, that, and, and then he just adapted it to the San Francisco area. So The thing that was interesting about the novel is that it's the exact same plan of we're going to, you know, I'm going to murder my wife, and I'm going to convince this guy that the person he's been seeing is my wife and she's suicidal. Then World War II breaks out. Uh, oh. And the guy, you know, they all they all have their, their wartime experiences. And when the war ends, he comes back to Paris and he runs into this woman or who he thinks is a different woman. But it was, you know, the woman who had portrayed the wife. Okay. Uh, but, but a lot of the details were the same. Uh, and his friend that had you know been the murderer and all that he had been killed in like a bombing during the war okay but the the madeline judy type character had survived i don't know i just i i was curious about the book i i don't suppose i'll ever read it but i just i did read up what it was about and what the differences were but i suppose somebody could adapt the book and set it you know in a different place or whatever, and it might not feel exactly like a remake of Vertigo. It's sometimes okay when people do that, when it's based on a book. Oh, right, like put it in that time and in, in France or whatever. That'd be interesting. But that, you know, that's all I've got to say about it. If you haven't seen Vertigo or you haven't seen it since you were a child, and you still want to see it after us talking for an hour, then yeah, <laughs> I, I cannot recommend it more. It's great. Yeah, I forgot to put a spoiler alert at the beginning. <laughs> but uh, if they don't know by now, I guess we do spoil these movies. But yeah, it's it's a classic for a reason. And uh, you know, I think, like like you said, it didn't do well when it first came out. But over time, people have realized you know how great it is and how well it was shot and just all the things that we've been talking about. So yeah, this has been great talking about. I love Alfred Hitchcock movies. I could probably do a Alfred Hitchcock podcast <laughs> and. Uh, start watching them all from a to z well we'll still do rope yeah we'll so yeah. If people if people enjoyed this episode we've got another one coming and uh, that, that will be fun all right well rish thanks for hanging out and talking about vertigo and we'll come back and 
and do rope next. And hopefully uh, everybody enjoy that too. Yeah, I hope that they do. But yeah, if you'd like to ask us any questions or request any movies, uh, you can contact us here at journeyintopodcast at gmail.com or you can call the voicemail line at uh, 77JN2107. Thank you again for uh, this excursion. I've been Rich Outfield. I'm Marshall Latham. Good night. Marshall, why did you scream? Why did you scream? <laughs> well, the podcast is almost over, Judy. And when it's done, we'll both be free. One doesn't often get a podcast license. The license. There was where you made your mistake, Judy. I remembered the license. You see... The Outfield Excursions podcast is produced under a Creative Commons 3.0 license. Do you know what that means? That means you can download it, listen to it, share it, but you can't sell it, you can't alter it, you can't say it was yours. You couldn't claim it for your own, Madeline. You shouldn't be so sentimental. Look, I made it. I made it to the end. Ring the bell. Hmm. With, um, gosh, who's the guy that played Uncle Ben in the Raimi Spider-Man films? I can't think of his name. Oh, it's right on the tip of my tongue. Cliff Robertson? Cliff Robertson, yeah. Yeah, that's right.